What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Rewired Soul podcast. And today, my guest, he's actually a returning guest, one of my new favorite authors. Well, he's been writing for a while, but I only recently found him. But it's Lee McIntyre, all right? So Lee just dropped his newest book yesterday at the time of releasing this. He dropped it yesterday. And check this out. The book is titled How to Talk to a Science Denier. All right. So Lee is just, I, I, I love his work so much. So he studies the philosophy of science. And I, I loved his, his last book uh, about the scientific attitude. He's written a book about post-truth that I still need to check out. But I was fortunate enough to get an early copy of How to Talk to a Science Denier. And if you're listening to this, if you have two ears and you are listening to this right now, you know, you know what's been going on in the world. Like right now, you know, uh, the, the Delta variant has been, you know, shutting things back down and we're all worried again and people wearing masks again. My son is back in school and we're still hearing about infections in, you know, in schools and stuff, but there's still this debate uh, around vaccines and how severe COVID is, even though we're like a year and a half into it, right? And yeah, that's why Lee's book is so, so, so important. So in in this conversation, we talk about uh, a few different topics. And yeah, like I love the book so much. You'll hear a little bit about Lee's experience. Lee actually went to a flat earthers convention, right? He's like, hey, I gotta go there and talk to these people and learn, you know, what they're about and how to have these conversations. And and it's really interesting, but most of all, like Lee is very compassionate and tries to be understanding. But yeah, in this conversation, not only do we talk about uh, flat earthers, people who are anti-vax, but we also talk about more left-leaning people and uh, science deniers uh, who talk about GMOs because there's a lot of misconceptions about foods and what's in them and what they do and all this stuff. So Lee is an awesome guy. I'm so glad he was able to come back on to talk about his new book. But yeah, make sure you check out the description down below. I loved, loved, loved this book so much. So down below, make sure you grab a copy. It's brand spanking new. And yeah, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Lee. But before we get started, also make sure while you're down there in that description, make sure you're following me over on Instagram and Twitter at The Rewired Soul. So that way you don't miss any new episodes. I'm always talking about what books I'm reading and I'm usually giving you guys little previews of who upcoming guests are. Like I usually tweet out like, hey, here's who I just talked to. And over on Instagram, like I've been building Legos and stuff. So I put that on my stories and all sorts of fun stuff. But most of all, I just love talking with all of you because that's one of the issues with podcasts coming from the YouTube world. There's no comment section. So I love when you guys engage with me over on Twitter or Instagram or whatever. But but yeah, that's just, that's just me letting you know that I enjoy you all and to follow me on Instagram and Twitter, but I need to get this, this conversation started with Lee. It was awesome. So yeah, I hope you all enjoy it. So here is my conversation with Lee McIntyre about his brand new book, How to Talk to a Science Denier. All right. Hello, Lee. Thanks for coming on. How are you doing today? I'm doing all right. Thank you for having me on. 
Absolutely. So this is the second time you're coming on the podcast and we're talking about your upcoming book uh, about how to talk to a science denier. And, and something I've been thinking about a lot since talking with authors and everything is how much work it takes to, to sit down and write a book and all the research. And, and for you, this is something you've been passionate about for a while. So can you talk a little bit about what the book is, what motivated you to write it and what kind of keeps your passion going mm -hmm. to get this kind of information out there? Yeah. So I'm a philosopher by training and uh, with a specialty in philosophy of science. And for many years, I wrote scholarship, you know, for other philosophers. And I got interested in this question, as all philosophers are, uh, philosophers of science are, what's so special about science? And how do you defend science against the people who attack it? Mm -hmm. That inevitably led me to the question of science denial. There are, you know, sorts of folks who attack science, question science, and I wanted to engage with them. I didn't just want to write for other scholars. I wanted to figure out how to engage with them. So I wrote a previous book called The Scientific Attitude, where I sketched out a theory of what's special about science. But then I kept getting these questions on the road as I was out mm. speaking to audiences about my theory. And they would say, well, you know, what should we do to implement this? And I'd say, well, you know, go out and talk to people who disagree with you. And then I thought, why am I not doing that? Yeah. So I started to do that. And once I started to do it, it was just fascinating work, unusual work for a philosopher. But then by the end, I had so much material mm -hmm. about these conversations that I wanted to write a new book, which is called How to Talk to a Science Denier. Mm. Yeah. And, and yeah, like, so I was fortunate enough to get an advanced copy of this. And once I started it, I couldn't stop it. Like you start the book out by you went to the flat earther convention. Like I've seen like some documentaries and stuff from like vice and everything like that. And, and yeah, you, you talk about different conversations that you have different people that you talk to and things that you've learned. And, and yeah, I, I want to ask you a few things about that, but sure. I think the biggest one, I think that so many of us need to learn, like through the book, I think I was most impressed by like your ability to be compassionate towards people with different views and understand and stuff. And I feel like that's something a lot of us lack. So how do you keep your cool when talking with people where their theories or beliefs seem to be completely outrageous? Like you were surrounded by yeah. them at this conference. I was, uh, it was November, 2018. And I put on my flannel shirt and I went out to Denver, Colorado and went to the Flat Earth International Conference where it was a two day conference and I just wanted to fit in with the rest of them, bought the ticket, put on the lanyard and just went to the talks and listened. So, and it was hard because they kept saying things that not only were false, but the reasoning behind them was ridiculous. And the inner philosopher in me just wanted to bust out. And philosophers are very argumentative types. Mm -hmm. Philosophers are not really known for being uh, patient, you know, in arguing with people. But I had decided before I went that my point wasn't to argue. My mm. point was to listen. Because my working theory going in is that you cannot convince somebody who's a science denier by presenting them with facts mm -hmm. because their beliefs are not based on facts in the first place. And say what you will about flat earthers, they know a lot of the facts, they just don't accept them. So you're not, it's not like you're gonna mention Galileo or Aristarchus or 
any of this and they haven't heard of it they know it mm -hmm. and, and you know, in, i mean they but then they've got some reason why it doesn't apply or why the evidence was uh, there was a big conspiracy or the evidence wasn't any good etc cetera, etc cetera. so you, if you're going to argue facts with them you really have to be on your toes and so what i did was i decided that i needed to spend the first day just listening but in the second day i engaged them as a philosopher which is to say, look, I'm not a scientist. You're not a scientist either. But I want to talk about your reasoning strategy, because mm. it seems to me that, you know, you're saying that your belief in flat earth is not based on faith. And they'd say, no, no, it's not based on faith. It's based on evidence. And I'd say, okay, well, then, you know, let's talk not about what the evidence is or isn't. Let's talk about how you reason on the basis of evidence. And they were unprepared for that. Um, and it was kind of immediately put it on my turf a, a little bit. So even though I was outnumbered, I refused to get pulled into these conversations where they would say, well, now just prove to me, you know, with what you've got in your pocket right now, prove to me that the earth is round. You, you can't really, you can't do that. Mm -hmm. Nor could I, with what I had on me, prove that their view was false. Mm -hmm. But what I could do was ask them questions, you know, like Socrates, how philosophy started. Yeah. And the question that I uh, borrowed from Karl Popper, one of the most famous philosophers of science ever was, what evidence would convince you that you mm -hmm. were wrong? And once I asked them that question, it kind of set them back a little bit. And then we could have a dialogue because they weren't just reciting some script that they had learned from somebody else on YouTube. They were forced to uh, try to explain to me because they wanted to convince me as much as I wanted to convince them. They wanted to explain to me why their view was justified and mm -hmm. they really couldn't do it. And the, the goal in that kind of situation is really, if, if you want to try to show that somebody's stupid to your own <laughs> satisfaction, you just yell at them and you yeah. walk away and you're not, it's not going to work. But if you really want to convince somebody, you have to let them talk because it's that moment when they didn't know what to say to me, when I could mm. see their brain rewiring, the rewired soul, <laughs> rewiring <laughs> a little bit and thinking, wait a minute, if my view is based on evidence, why can't I tell him uh, what evidence would convince me? That seems like a reasonable thing. And yet one guy, one of the guest speakers, I took him out to dinner and we talked for two hours about yeah. this. I mean, so we really had I really had some great conversations and I learned a lot mm -hmm. and I, I was engaged. Yeah. And uh, yeah, there's so, so much, uh, within just what, what you said, like the first thing, you know, uh, I think one of the biggest misconceptions is that we could just present people with facts, right? Yeah. Like I, I'm a recovering addict and everything like that. And I worked in treatment and I always thought that was silly because I'm sitting in a room here in Las Vegas, right? With a bunch of people trying to get clean. And I'm like, by a show of hands, how many of you did not know that heroin was bad for you? Right. And like, like the fact, like when you look at it in kind of different angles and just kind of use the same, like, thinking strategies in different areas you're like oh mm -hmm. yeah why would facts convince this person if it hasn't yet and that's what i love is like you yeah. you talk to them and try to understand like where their line of reasoning and where it comes from and uh yeah. as you as you know i i recently talked with michael Shermer. something i learned from people like him and yourself and Stephen novella is that question of what would it take to convince you otherwise right and that's huge. And I don't want to spoil the book because 
the conversation you had with that that guy at dinner was one of my favorite parts. But, oh, mine but, too. Yeah. Um, you you were asking like what would convince you, and and there was like all these gymnastics and hoops of what would you have to do to prove that the Earth wasn't flat? Yeah. How how do you how do you deal with that or overcome that? I, I mean, you bring up a good point because what it's like is trying to talk somebody out of their religion. Mm -hmm. No, uh, and I mean, they will tell you the view is not based on faith, and maybe it isn't, but it is part of their identity. It's not just what they believe, it's who they are. And so when you attack the belief, you're attacking them, mm -hmm. uh, which is not a, you know, a polite thing to do. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, in order to have a respectful, patient, you know, give and take kind of a conversation, I always had to remember that um, every time I questioned what they believed, I was, they, they were taking it personally. Um, mm -hmm. And that's not really what a scientist is supposed to do, right? A scientist is supposed to be willing to change his or her mind based on new evidence, but that's not really what, what they were doing. And I'll tell you this, it is much harder than people think to do mm. this because the, um, the coin of the realm is trust. And maybe I chose the hardest venue possible to convert anybody, because when you go into a room with 650 people who all believe one thing and you don't, mm -hmm. the odds are very stacked against. I mean, those are kind of the hardcore people reinforced by their friends. And so it's very difficult to do. Mm -hmm. I, I think a much better strategy, and one I recommend in the book, is to talk to your family and friends because mm -hmm. you already have trust with them. And maybe it's a good question for, I don't know, maybe this applies to, to other things, changing beliefs, right? If you, if you think back to, I don't, I don't want to turn the tables on here on your, your own podcast, ask, ask you to reflect. You, you said that you're, you're recovering now, you're no longer an addict. And I ask you to think about what got you out of it. I bet it wasn't a fact somebody presented. I bet it was a conversation you had with a person that you trusted mm -hmm. who maybe raised a question that caused you to really think yeah. about your own life and your relationship with this person. Now, I don't know you and I'm just guessing. Yeah. But but I'm I'm the reason I say that is because it's not just the message, it's the messenger. It's where people mm -hmm. get the facts and information from. Yeah, I, and that's really interesting that you bring it up. Because now I'm now I'm really reflecting on that because uh, I'm very fortunate that my mom is also in recovery and she's the mm -hmm. one who tried getting me sober and mm -hmm. that close relationship I think was what was blocking me and it was mm -hmm. actually someone else she had me talk to but uh, it's one of the reasons I have this belief that sometimes there's just someone who could say the right thing at the right time and this guy just asked me what do you have to lose and that had me question my beliefs mm -hmm. because I was like wait I I literally don't have anything to lose you know and it was this guy but i've also been really interested in the topic of trust and who we trust and why we trust mm -hmm. and his personal experience was that he's been through what i was going through you know so i'm i'm almost curious too uh like i was just mm -hmm. talking with someone about QAnon, and there's like a subreddit for people who have left QAnon, right mm -hmm. so i'm wondering mm -hmm. if that helps expedite the trust in uh, uh, in other aspects, um, like say you you want to help more than starting with your your immediate circle. What do you think about 
that and developing trust with others. I, I mean, that that's the that's the go-to way that they deprogram people from cults mm. is to have them talk with someone who is a former cult member so that they know all the facts and such. And so, I mean, even if that person is a stranger, there is some degree of trust there, right? Mm. Because you recognized in this conversation you had with this other person that he had lived through what you had lived through. So there, so there was a, a, some level of trust there. Mm. Though I'm intrigued by the idea that it was a question that brought yeah. you out of it, because they always say that you can't, you can't change someone's mind, but you can ask them questions that lead them to change their own mind. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they have to be the one that, I mean, he, he could have asked you that same question two or three years earlier, and it might not have made the difference, mm -hmm. but so you were the one who changed your mind. But it, and I mean, maybe you had even thought of that question, but the, you know, it had to occur with the right person in the right circumstance. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's it's you know one of the one of the huge reasons why when it comes from like a therapeutic aspect, like I'm a huge fan of motivated reasoning or not motivated reasoning, but uh, no. motivated uh, uh, motivational interviewing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, motivated reasoning too, but motivational interviewing because that whole strategy is about. Asking yeah. questions and getting people to to come to their 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 own conclusions. So, what what do you think? Um, because, like with your book, I'm I'm curious if it's going to help give other people tools and things like that. And hell, I'll use myself as an example. I'm a content creator. I'm just hoping to reach whoever likes to learn and get their wheels mm -hmm. turning and stuff like that. What do you think the best way is to reach people that maybe I don't know? Or if somebody who picks up your book wants to reach people who they know are denying science, but wants to have that conversation, like you you went to a, a convention and had a lot of experience with that. Like, yeah. How do you talk to strangers about it? Uh, it, it th so that is the hardest thing to do. Mm. Um, and, and in fact, it, it's curious because at the Flat Earth Convention, one of my favorite sessions was on how to talk people into flat earth because I wanted to see what techniques they used to get them into it to mm. see if I could use the same techniques to get them out, out of it. And a lot of them were exactly the same. Uh, and, and so I guess what I would recommend is um, preserving the relationship between the, you and the other person, Right, because when it becomes adversarial, when when you care more about being right than you do about the relationship, then mm. then it's not going to work. And so that that's I mean, people always say don't talk about religion or politics, you know, with with your you know over Thanksgiving dinner. Yeah. But maybe that's the perfect time to convince somebody, right? But it has to be done with love. It has to be done with patience and respect. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it really doesn't work. I mean. If you try to convince somebody of something even that they believe in, but you're rude to them, they're they're never going to admit it, right? So so it and it yeah and the other thing that's interesting too that that I learned, it takes time to kind of a hit and run, go in there, present them with the facts, and then leave. That almost never works. Mm. But if you can build a relationship over time, that uh, that uh, that has a a better prospect. Now I have to say this. Even if you're close to someone, it can be almost impossible to do. And I get mail and I get, you know, people contact me. And I did have someone contact me 
not long ago uh, with a family member who had just gotten into flat earth and wanted mm. some advice on how to get him out of it. And my advice was to, you know, don't risk the relationship, always make the relationship primary. And if you disagree, you disagree, but don't allow that to break the relationship because eventually just by having an example of someone who disagrees, it might bring them around. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I want, I want to talk, I want to dedicate a whole section of this conversation to uh, the, the, the GMO conversation and the yeah. conversation you had with your friend and everything yeah. like that. <laughs> but um, let me ask you this, when it comes to relationships, because you, you share some personal stories and, and talking with like fellow scientists and things like that. And mm -hmm. why, why do you think that it's so difficult for people to have calm conversations and preserve that relationship like you know uh uh you know uh john rouch and stuff like that like with his recent book and we talk about like outrage mm -hmm. culture and people just right, butting right. heads what do, what do you think it is about human nature that makes it so hard for us to just be like oh we believe different things let's work through it and talk to it talk about it like philosophers um I have a theory on this that I've never really expressed in public, but you, you're drawing it out of me. <laughs> Let me hear it. I think it's because our own identity is threatened. Mm. It's not just the identity of the denier, it's the identity of the scientist. When a scientist is forced into the position of having to defend what they do and have other people say, you're a liar, you're in, you know, conspiracy with, you know, George Soros, you, you know, you're, you're under the influence of Satan, whatever they say. Yeah. How can they not take that personally and, you know, get angry? And I mean, the, the most common reaction that you find among scientists talking with a science denier is that they walk away. Mm. They'll present a few facts and then say, these people are not worth talking to and then walk away. Now, I'm not claiming that the scientist is irrational because there are probably you know maybe they're right it's not worth their time how can i say what's worth their time because they're probably not going to succeed but here's an interesting point there is now a study that i talk about extensively in the book that shows that you can convert mm -hmm. science deniers and so when a scientist says it's not worth talking to these people they're wrong they're being a denier, yeah, right? You got to speak they, their they're language. Actually, they're actually, it, it is possible, but they would have to learn how to do it. And mm -hmm. so, you know, I just think human beings are driven by ego along with many other things. And no matter whether we're rational or not, no matter whether, you know, mm -hmm. we feel like we've got a strong identity group or not, we feel threatened when somebody challenges our beliefs. Mm -hmm. and, it, and it takes, I'll, I'll say for myself, it took a lot to just kind of sit there and take it, listening to mm -hmm. them say things about me that I knew were untrue. Mm -hmm. they, a lot of the flat earthers suspected that I was one of the um, conspirators yeah. who for them means that I was under the influence of the devil. I was doing the devil's work. Mm -hmm. And I had to listen to them say this to my face and not get angry mm -hmm. in order to, you know, to be able to have a conversation. Yeah, it, it's really interesting. I'm glad you brought up the, the ego aspect of it. Like I, I look back at my own kind of personal journey of trying to learn and 
you know, grow and everything like that. And, you know, I started in, you know, 12 step meetings as an atheist and they're talking about all this spiritual stuff. And then, uh, you know, I realized how I can kind of do that, uh, especially like through like Sam Harris's book, Waking Up, where mm-hmm. you like atheism crossing with spirituality. But then I got into like Buddhism and looking at that and looking at all the stuff about the ego. Um, mm-hmm. But now that I've really been into books like yours and all the science and everything, I, 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 I'm trying to find that balance between looking at these kind of ideas and philosophies like the ego and everything and i think andy did a good job talking about it in yeah mental immunity he, how how you can kind of have yes. that give and take right he's 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 one of my close friends we we went to college together and he's so you, you've really got a, a great uh, lineup uh, <laughs> uh, uh, coming up i mean andy he's he's wonderful and uh he's very patient he's he's very patient i think he would be an ideal person to talk to a science denier because he's got arbitration training. He kind of knows how to facilitate a conversation, not get upset. Mm-hmm. I, I'm a little bit more of a hothead. And so yeah. maybe I was the wrong person to, you know, go to the flat earth convention. You know, I can write about it. I can think about it. Mm-hmm. But when you put me right in front of him with the microphone in my hand, every now and then I'll say something a little snarky, you know, yeah. which, which is maybe not going to help. So it's, it's been hard for me to kind of learn to keep my ego in check mm-hmm. because you, and again, maybe it's what makes people into philosophers, you know, that they want to argue, they want to win. I wanted to debunk them so bad. I could taste it. I mean, <laughs> okay. I was in that meeting. I wanted to just be able to say the perfect thing, mic drop, and walk it doesn't out. walk out, <laughs> but it's, yeah. it's never going to happen. And if you go into it with that attitude, mm-hmm. then, you know, you're, you're not going to have success. It's, it's really, it's a different kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's something that's, it's taken me forever. And it's something that, uh, you know, I still work on, but I, my, my personal fuel used to just be being right you know? Yes. And, and I, I, I would get this joy out of proving people wrong. I would sit there on internet forums and write this whole thing and cite sources and everything like that. Yeah. And I think I got interested in, in your work and, and uh, other, others like you by, by realizing like that wasn't working, you know, mm-hmm. how much time was I wasting pulling in all these facts and proving how right I am with evidence. And it just wasn't doing anything, you know? Um, but what's the goal then is the goal to make yourself feel justified in your beliefs because mm-hmm. that person's wrong or is it to convince the other person mm. right and i mean they're, they're maybe they're both in some way legitimate goals because you know try to justify your own beliefs but it's it's uh, most people in the comment section on an article they're they're not trying to convince the other person they're trying to show that their own mm-hmm. view is right. And boy, you run into a lot of that in philosophy. I'll tell mm-hmm. you, there are an awful lot of people that love that same fuel of uh, I'm going to show I'm right. <laughs> yeah. Well, what's interesting too, is one of the reasons I, I enjoy philosophy is sometimes like I, I'll, I'll leave a, a conversation or a book and just have more questions and, oh, like it's yeah. still kind of open-ended and just seeing just the different perspectives and everything. Yeah. But Here's something that I'm curious about, uh, just even looking at this conspiracy theorists or science deniers. Where, where do you stand or what's your opinion? I think you discussed it a little bit in the book, but is there an issue with just letting someone believe what they want to believe? Like when I was talking with Andy, it's, you know, he talks about yeah. spreading bad ideas and how it can infect other people. Like, is, are there any scenarios where it's like, oh, you want to believe in that? 
okay, cool. And then you just walk away. Or is it something that we should actively be trying to like plant those little seeds and correct their thinking? It's, it's such a hard question because I, I guess I used to think more than I now do that there are some beliefs that it is not hurting anybody. Mm-hmm. You know, like there's some types of science denial, like COVID denial or climate mm-hmm. denial, where, yeah, they're actively hurting the rest of us because we're all in the same boat. Mm-hmm. But I had to ask myself before I went to the Flat Earth Convention, who are these people really hurting? Yeah. Yeah. No, especially with right? Flat Earthers. That's what I always right. think. I'm like, so who are so they that's, hurting? I mean, so that occurred to me. Yeah. But then once I was there and came back and had a chance to think about it, I thought, it, it it is all part of the same thing. It's all part of a denialist culture, because what I learned at the meeting, uh, at the conference, was that when somebody holds one conspiracy theory, they tend to hold many many others, and mm-hmm. so several of the flat earthers that I spoke to, also believed that nine eleven was an inside job. Also believed that Sandy Hook was fake. Mm-hmm. Also believed a number of other things that are harmful. And so I I think that when you're trying to talk somebody out of their denialist beliefs, there's a sense in which, like Andy's doing, you're trying to talk them out of all their denialist beliefs, Mm -hmm. some of which may be harmful and some of which are not, but but you don't really know Mm -hmm. um, necessarily, or you don't know how the person is using that belief. One of the sessions at the Flat Earth Convention that actually got my blood boiling and I had to leave Mm-hmm. was when they talked about uh, children, mm. how to convert children. Oh. Because they're, so I think they are harming. So you might say, who are they hurting? Well, if they're an adult watching YouTube video and they change their mind, um, you, might, you might say they're not hurting anybody. But if they're indoctrinating their children into this point of view, what chance does that child have mm-hmm. uh, later on? That, that's, so I, I think, and you know, I, what I'm predicting, and I haven't been proven right yet, but what I'm predicting is that flat Earth is is growing. It's a growing movement, and that eventually they will run for school board, the mm-hmm. same as the anti-evolutionists run for school board and try to keep evolution from being taught in the public schools. Mm-hmm. I think that flat Earthers' goal is ultimately to say, "Well, teach the controversy in physics class." Yeah, yeah, the because false, then they've the won. Balance. Because yeah. because then they've won. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it does hurt. Yeah, it, it's it's interesting. Like I I was just having a conversation with someone else. Like I try to I try my best to stay away from like the whole slippery slope idea. Yeah. But you can in some situations, like I think you brought up a great example. If if you're a parent who believes in the flat earth. And then you have a child, you are then teaching them. And what you're doing is you're, you're teaching someone who's going to grow up to not trust science or not think scientifically and, and all of that. Right. So, you know, as a, as a father, myself, my son's 12, I, I really try to coach him to find that balance between questioning things while also trusting scientific consensus, just so he can, you know, make better decisions and see the world and, you know, get closer to the truth. You know what I mean? That's good. I mean, that that's you just defined what Carl Sagan would say as a scientist, right? Mm. Doubt and trust. You've got yeah. to be skeptical, but when the evidence is there, give your assent. Uh, that it's, it doesn't necessarily mean that be- the belief is certain, but you've got enough evidence that it's uh, that you can believe that it's true. 
Yeah. And, and I want to, I want to go back to something we were talking about uh, just a, a few minutes ago about uh, some scientists who just walk away from these conversations yeah. with science deniers. So do you, do you think, or maybe this is already happening and I don't even know, do you think when uh, people are training to be, you know, whatever kind of uh, field of science they're getting into, do you think some aspect of it should be like, not, uh, I don't know, be like bedside manner and talking to science denialists. Like, oh, yes. I think your, your book is a great handbook for it, but is that being taught in colleges or anything? Or It, it is. There are a couple of places that I can think of. Um, there's a, uh, the University of Cincinnati has a, a mm. center for public engagement on science. Um, and the other one that I can think of is uh, SUNY Stony Brook that has the Alan Alda Center, where they work with... Um, uh, scientists and science communicators, journalists, you know, other people for how to have these kinds of conversations. Um, because, you know, they, they really don't, just as in philosophy graduate school, they don't train philosophers to do what I'm doing now. You yeah. know, they, they just, they don't train for engaging the public. They don't train scientists in their graduate school for how to present their ideas to the general public. And yet it's very important that you know, they're able to present in a way that, you know, a U.S. senator or, you know, a journalist or other mm -hmm. people can understand what their what their ideas are about. You know, there's that, that old joke that every disaster movie begins with somebody ignoring a scientist, you know? <laughs> yeah. and, and I mean, so how do the, and you, when you watch those scenes, you know, you think about, how is the scientist getting, I mean, it's Hollywood, of course, but how is the scientist getting the information across? You know, it's disaster. If you don't do what I say, you know, the whole world's mm -hmm. going to come to an end. I don't think that's how they actually do it. If you look at, uh, for the most part, they'll present so many error bars and so many qualifications on what they're saying because they're trying to be accurate. Mm -hmm. that then the denier can come in and say, well, you don't know. You haven't proven that, look what happened with COVID, right? You, you haven't proven that it's true. You're not certain. Mm -hmm. That was the number one thing that happened with the flat earthers is they would say, I'm more scientific than the scientists. Look how skeptical I am. Yeah. You know, but, but they're not. What they do is they have a double standard of evidence where mm -hmm. they're completely gullible about what they want to believe and then skeptical beyond all reason of the things that they don't want to believe. That's not what a scientist would do. I have enormous respect and admiration for scientists. And part of the reason I wrote this book is to reach scientists and to say, mm. it is possible to have these kind of conversations. Mm. Uh, I wrote a piece in the American Journal of Physics called Calling All Physicists. And as a result of that, um, a very prominent physicist named Bruce Sherwood uh, contacted me, got fascinated with flat earth and built a computer model using only the flat earthers only own assumptions, which shows the contradictions in their view. I mean, they can, if they didn't know what it was, they can use this computer model, walk inside, look up, and he can just <laughs> ask questions about, well, do you see this? Do you see that? Well, why not? Well, why not? It's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant stuff. Yeah. And, and uh, yeah, that's interesting. Uh, uh, I recently read Alan Alda's uh, book, like, if I understood you, why would I have this stupid look on my face? And it's about how scientists can like better communicate. And, and I, I don't know, I think that's one of my goals, one of my missions with, you know, this podcast or uh, any content that I create is like, I, I am just uh, a guy, I don't even have a college degree, I just love to learn. And, and I, I try to think about how, how do you communicate these complex 
topics to people. Like I think mm-hmm. way, way back when my son was first born, we almost didn't get him vaccinated until I educated myself. And that could have had mm-hmm. real life effects on him. And, you know, I just, I, I love to learn. So I'm always thinking like, how do you bridge that gap? How do you communicate that? And one thing for anybody who hasn't read your books yet, I love your books because a guy like me can understand them. Oh, um, thank you. But here's something I've been, I've been kind of thinking about lately. Do you think, do you think there's a misconception uh, when people just hear the word science? Like I sit back and like when I was making, uh, as the t- at the time of rec- we're recording this, I have this week going on, but you know, you're a guest on it and Andy and Michael Shermer, it's like scientific thinking. And I'm like, should I name it that? Cause when I think science, I think of guys in lab coats with like beakers and chemicals and, and something mm-hmm. way too complicated. Do you think I don't know. Do you think the average person hears science and maybe it's a little intimidating? I thought about this question in the last couple of years as I was writing the last couple of books. And because people kept asking me, well, do you think something has changed? Mm. You know, what's changed? And here's the thing. I think what's changed is that fewer people trust scientists now than they used to fewer maybe because as uh, tom nichols says that you know they they don't trust authority they don't trust institutions Mm -hmm. anymore right they don't trust experts anymore maybe that's you know caught up in part of that but but here's the thing it's that they i don't think that it's i don't think you can infer from that that fewer people trust science that that means that we, you know, way back in the gauzy era, era of the 50s and 60s, when, you know, the scientists in the white lab coats, and, you know, got us to the to uh, mm-hmm. space. I don't think they understood science any better back then than they do now. Mm-hmm. So even the people who trust science, I don't think they understand science. Yeah. Because to understand science means to embrace the idea that scientists, science is based on warrant and evidence not on proof and certainty. Mm-hmm. And if you just go out there and talk to lay people, almost all of them will talk about proof and certainty. And that is a, that is a, a landmine for scientists <laughs> to realize, right. right? Because you cannot prove scientific results with proof and certainty, which when then you admit, they go, oh, well, then I don't need to listen to you. And that is the exact weapon Mm. that the science deniers use to hit us over the head with, right? Because they'll say, well, just prove it, just prove it, just prove it. And if you can't, well, then my view is just as good as yours. Mm -hmm. But it's not, it's not because it's based on warrant. Mm -hmm. It's based on evidence. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that's something that, uh, you know, I, I'm learning more about too, is just, you know, science uh, people, I, I, it feels like people want to see it as very black and white. They're, it's either right or it's wrong, but mm-hmm. it's more of this kind of like accumulation of knowledge and where we are now and how we have a better understanding of certain that's things. Right. Like even a hundred years ago, when you look at medicine or even psychiatry yeah. and the yeah. insane stuff they were doing compared to what we know now with more technology, it's like, no, it's constantly uh, improving and advancing. And I, I'm sure you've, you've uh, pondered on this a little bit too, when we're talking about COVID, right. And something you discuss in uh, this book and the scientific attitude is Part of, part of science is updating your beliefs based on new information, new data and all that. So when we look at COVID and we look at just the difference between like February and March of last year to like mm-hmm. April and May, mm-hmm. 
the the anti-COVID people or the COVID denialists, uh, uh, they they point to that. They point to, okay, look, in February they said this, but in May they said that. Like, how how do you deal with or educate people on this updating belief system when people also want to point to that as you don't know what you're talking about? It, it, it's, it, it's a, that's a tough question because, and that's a concentrated form of, of a much larger problem. And, and it was life-threatening too. So everybody was, was scared to death because they needed answers, you know, and they needed them quickly. Mm -hmm. The careful answer is to say that scientists update their beliefs when they get new evidence and that they're never, that's what makes science great because they're never, uh, as I just said, you can't prove things with certainty in science, which means that to be a scientist means to hold out the possibility that your beliefs could be wrong and you could update them based on, uh, based on new evidence, mm -hmm. okay? And, and so, and Chris, I maintain that what people don't understand about that is that it's not all or nothing. It's not like you have proof or you have zero. Because I've mentioned the concept of warrant a couple of times. What warrant means is that you have enough evidence that it seems improbable that you're wrong, okay? Look at the evidence in favor of climate change. It's now a million to one yeah. that the de deniers are uh, right. But they would say, aha, but there's a one in a million chance, but you don't want to be that guy, right? But yeah. technically speaking, they can't prove cli that climate change is real, but they've got such great evidence that it you know, might, might as well be. Okay. Mm -hmm. Here's what happened with COVID. All this got played out on TV in real time with people paying attention because their lives were on the line and they didn't understand how science worked. And so it upset them. Mm-hmm. But it, and so they need a little bit of education about how science actually works. But now here's the non-careful answer. The scientists also lied. There was a moment when you saw officials say, um, we don't have any evidence that masks work. So the general public shouldn't, doesn't need to use N95 masks. Mm. And you can now read some of those folks in their own words saying, well, part of the reason we did that is because we needed to preserve the N95 masks for the healthcare workers. Yeah. Now as public health officials, maybe that was their job to do that because they're not, they're worried about, you know, all of our lives, the collective, but you know, there's the precautionary principle, would it have, and I remember asking my wife this at the time, who's a physician, would, wouldn't it be, okay, the CDC has just said, I don't have to wear a mask, but am I causing any harm to wear a mask? Does it hurt me to wear a mask? Why shouldn't mm -hmm. I wear a mask? But that's not what the CDC said. They said, no, you shouldn't be wearing a mask. And here's the problem. They may at the time have thought they were doing the right thing, but once you erode, you burn up trust, you can't get it back. And I think that if you look at the long run of what happened with COVID, nobody believed them after that. And if they had just been up front at the beginning, listen to me Monday morning quarterbacking, right? Yeah. But if they had been able to say, we don't have the evidence to say that N95 masks are necessary for the general public. It cannot hurt you to wear a mask, 
But if you're gonna wear a mask, please don't use the N95s because we need those for the healthcare workers. Mm -hmm. If they had put it in that way, I think they would have gotten about the same level of compliance, but they mm -hmm. wouldn't have burned their trust to a crisp. Instead, they lied. And you know, it looked, and the downstream effect of that was devastating because once you lie to a science denier, they will never believe anything you say ever again, even mm -hmm. when it's really important that they listen. Yeah, no, and it, it, it's, it's it, that makes so much sense. I'm glad you brought that up because, yeah, um, it's it's this weird it's this weird thing where if if there was just that transparency, and I can only imagine that people like yourself or people who are just arguing on behalf of science, something like this happens. If I were in your situation, I'd be like, we're trying so hard to teach people about scientific thinking, and then you go yeah. out and lie. You just did something yeah. that they can latch onto because people will point people point to like something that blows my mind is that people will point to like experiments that the government did in like 1924 and say, see, see, we're still experimenting on here, you know, and just these things like when yeah. ethics wasn't, you know, a huge aspect well, of science and things like that. Th 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 those can be legitimate criticism. I mean, the, the, mm -hmm. the ethic, the ethical, <laughs> I, I, I know what you're talking about. There, there, there are some criticisms that are more legitimate than others, mm. but um, the, the thing, the thing that I, I mean, I can imagine the pressure that the scientists were under when mm. they were being attacked from all sides and feeling like, you know, would you just leave it to us? Would you just let us tell you what to do and go do it and we'll all get out of this and we won't die? Yeah. But, you know, and they, so in, in a way they had to trust the public to be able to handle a nuanced statement and they didn't. In, mm. in some cases and it was frustrating but you know what they didn't get it right and uh on that but they got it right on so many other things so you know i don't want it to seem you know the one clip of this interview that the flat earthers will use is the scientists lied that's yeah. what they'll use right so i don't want it to to make it seem like i'm being overly harsh on scientists mm -hmm. but simply to say don't be threatened by scientific uncertainty own it mm. that's what makes science special admit yeah. freely we can't prove things we're uncertain isn't it wonderful because that's how we learn yeah i think that I, message has got to get out there yeah absolutely absolutely and uh yeah I, I think about that and i think about you know going back to we were talking about our ego and everything and some of us are afraid to admit when we're wrong and and it's kind of this cultural thing too we always want to be right and we don't want to seem like we have to but like i have this kind of freedom of just being like hey i'm human i'm gonna screw up i might have to go back and correct things yeah. and and you know and it'd be great if like some of the you know uh policymakers and the bigger aspects of the government would take that kind of yeah attitude. Um, so something that uh, you bring up in the book, and I think about a lot is, is there's kind of this, I don't know, idea, I think when we hear the word science deniers, we think about, oh, these are, these are conservative right wing people who just believe in God, don't trust science and all that. But you discuss in your book how it's, it crosses party lines and both liberals and conservatives. And before we like kind of dive into this topic, I think the best example you give is GMOs. Mm -hmm. And I'm a huge nerd. I don't mind reading into that. Like, can you simplify what GMOs are and why people are reluctant to have them? Or they think that these are terrible and they're gonna turn you into a mutant or something crazy. 
trust. Yeah. <laughs> that That's what it comes down to. I mean, a GMO is a genetically modified organism. Mm -hmm. as some of them are foods. And some people are afraid of anything that's unnatural in their food. Sometimes with good reason down the road it turns out that something that we thought was safe ends up not being safe mm -hmm. here's the thing with gmos are they safe to eat there is no evidence that gmo foods are unsafe to eat now there are maybe other reasons not to want gmos there are other reasons even to be concerned about their bad effects on the environment on agriculture etc cetera, etc cetera. and i go into some of this in the book i've got a whole chapter on gmos mm -hmm. but is there any scientific evidence that gmos are unsafe to eat there is not mm -hmm. and yet more people say the the, the gap between the scientific consensus on GMOs and public opinion on it, on what I just said mm -hmm. is greater than the gap on climate change. Mm -hmm. um, so many people, um, liberal or conservative, don't trust GMOs. Now, part of that's because they don't know what GMOs are, how they're made, you know, what's involved in it. Mm -hmm. And the labeling requirement or the, you know, the, the industry labeling can make that worse right because mm -hmm. they make it sound like you know um they'll say on the label you know no pesticides no artificial colors no gmos well those first two are pretty bad things right, right. i don't want to eat those and so i see no gmos <laughs> and i think oh well that, my god that must be a bad thing too i mean people don't have the time to really learn and i wanted to include that topic in my book because i really didn't know that much about it mm. i had heard a lot of people like Michael Shermer, who I greatly respect, you know, talk about this, but I'd never really investigated it for myself. And I thought, you know what, it's, it's time to do this. Everybody talks about anti-vax. They talk about climate change. What about GMOs? And so I got into it. Mm -hmm. And then the challenge was, what does GMO denial mean? Is it somebody who won't eat one? Is it somebody who thinks that they're unsafe? Is it somebody who burns the crops of the farmers, you know, who raise them, uh, yeah. you know, or give money to the people who do, you know, so I had to think about what it means to be a GMO denier, because I was skirting this political question too, and having people in my life, uh -huh. who I was close to, that I wondered, is that person a GMO denier? Yeah, and what does that mean? And, and so that was really personal and important yeah. for me to get into. Yeah, I think, I think, and and of course, everybody listening to this is going to go buy your book, but I think that was one of my favorite parts was you were like, I'm going to talk to my science buddy who's not a fan of GMOs and just yeah. the conversation, the way you documented it, I, like I felt the awkwardness. I'm like, oh, I would have stopped by now. Like I was just trying oh, to man. picture myself talking with a friend about something that <laughs> they, they have a firm belief in and they're educated yeah. in. But I think, uh, yeah, like you kind of just explained, like there's, there's like kind of uh, if I'm if I'm if I learned correctly from your book, there's kind of this uh, difference between a denier and a skeptic. Did you kind of land that he was more I, skeptical of it than a denier? I, I what I ended up is that some people have for some people it's a moral objection or an aesthetic objection, not necessarily a mm. um, a, a, a rational a, a reasoned objection so for instance um 
some people don't like, the, you know, with good reason, the company Monsanto, mm-hmm. who did a lot of work on uh, on GMOs. They're not the only company that uh, makes GMOs. They're now out of business and bought up by Bayer, so they don't even exist anymore. But DDT, Agent Orange, you know, pretty bad things. And then they find out they're in the food industry. Oh, my God, you know, would I want to eat that? That's the question that, that people ask. Mm-hmm. But now here's, here's the question I want to ask. Can you leverage that kind of general, I don't trust that company skepticism, or I don't trust any company, food company skepticism, against university researchers on this? Mm. So, for instance, Golden Rice is a GMO product that is specifically genetically engineered to have vitamin A in it, so that you know the quarter of the world's population who eat rice every day um, can get vitamin A and cut out the however many thousand kids a year uh, get blinded by vitamin A deficiency or or die from uh, you know from it. So you know. And yet golden rice has gotten caught up with all of the other worries about Monsanto and agricultural practices and and this and that. Um, The the most important book that I read on this was called Seeds of Science by Mark Mm. Linus, who was a previous uh, uh, anti-GMO activist. He was the guy who went out there and burned the crops in the field and then changed his mind years later. Now, because I'm interested in belief change, I mean, that was catnip for me, right? I mean, wow, you changed your mind. How did it happen? You know, I was really fascinated. But because he knows the ins and outs of both sides of it, his his book was really fascinating to me. And, you know, he's trying to debunk uh, GMO denial. Mm. Um, and, and specifically, you, you know, you, you have, this is a kind of a nuanced question in the book. It's not just denial, because I think there's some people who are anti-GMO who are not GMO deniers, right? They're not going to say, oh, if I eat that, it'll kill me, or it's unsafe to eat. They just, they don't like the principle of um, people doing things with their food for profit as opposed to nutrition or health, to which point I bring in golden rice, but. Yeah. So, so when it gets to that, that point where it's like kind of a ethical moral thing and now we're kind of outside the realm of science at that point do you are you just kind of like fair enough and walk away from that no no No, because (laughs) because here's because here's the problem and this was part of my um part of my conversation with my friend ted uh pseudonym i gotta make sure i use the pseudonym yeah um (laughs) one of the main questions that i asked him was how is your position on GMOs not the same as an anti-vaxxer's position on vaccines? It hasn't been proven safe. They need to do more research. 20 years down down the line, they might find something. Mm -hmm. These are the words that are coming out of your mouth, Ted, about GMOs. How is that not exactly what they say about vaccines? Mm -hmm. And that gave him pause because he's not an anti-vaxxer. Yeah. Yeah. And so to, to kind of 
wrap this up with one final question, just real, real quick about myself. Uh, something that saved my life when I got sober was when I realized that like I was prone to seeing the differences rather than the similarities. Like I can't relate to, you know, I'm, I'm unique, I'm different, right? But when I saw that I could relate to these things, it really helped me out. And that's how I try to practice empathy and, you know, uh, understand uh, science deniers and everything like that. So last, last summer, I felt like I was taking crazy pills because I have no problem just, you know, being public, like, you know, I'm, I'm pretty left-leaning and progressive and, you know, I love science and all that stuff. But when the BLM protests happened and I was all, you know, I was like, cool, cool. You guys are going out there and doing your thing. But at the same time, people who I saw yelling at, you know, people who were denying COVID were the same people who at, were going into these large groups protesting, acting like it was going to be fine, right? And it's like, well, do you believe the science or you don't believe the science? So do you think like, or what are your thoughts? Like, how do we, how do we bridge that gap where like, like you were mentioning, like you, you asked your friend, like, hey, how are you different than an anti-vaxxer, right? Like, do you think it would help if liberals understood like, hey, sometimes I get into this weird science denial place too, or whether it's GMOs or whether it's like me justifying large gatherings or like, what are, what are your thoughts on that? Like, how do I'm, we work on that? I, I'm not sure I understand the science denial BLM connection so, there and so, what you were saying, but I, I think what you're after is the idea of whether or not it's possible for liberals to be science deniers. And, yeah. the, and, the, and the answer is yes. Um, about, and, and I, in the book, I talk about anti-vax and I talk about GMOs and in particular, but there are also, so the, the question of can there be liberal science deniers could mean, is there, you know, just in the same way that COVID swings so far right wing, is there some area of denial that swings so far left wing? That could be one way to define it. Mm -hmm. But the other way to think of the question is just, are there any liberals who are science deniers? The answer to that is, is yes. And then the question is, why so many in anti-vax and in um, uh, anti-GMO? And I think the answer is that um, some areas of science denial have been politicized and some have not. Mm. And some people look to their political beliefs, you know, to tell them what to believe in, you know, collateral areas and such, you know, kind of what, what else should I believe, you know? Uh, yeah. Um, but, but we're all wired with the same cognitive biases. Mm -hmm. We're all wired up with confirmation bias and motivated reasoning that you mentioned and subject being subject to community or peer pressure in our beliefs. And, you know, all these other things that Daniel Kahneman talks about in his wonderful book, Thinking Fast and Slow. Um, and I think that there is a danger for people to say, oh, well, I'm a liberal, I'm immune. Mm. I couldn't have science denial. I couldn't, you know, I trust science so much, you know, I couldn't believe this, or I, I you know, I, I couldn't believe that. I, I think there's a danger to that, because one way to fight science denial is to fight it in ourselves yeah and we're all prone at a certain point to believing the thing that we want to believe and, and it doesn't have that doesn't have to amount to fraud or irrationality maybe it has to do with just looking for evidence that you're right you know confirmation bias yeah. maybe it has to do with being more skeptical of you know certain views because it seems like you know they come 
from another uh, you know, party that you, you don't want to believe. I'll give you a good example on this. The whole question of where did the uh, coronavirus virus originate? Um, it now looks like there's some uh, legitimate question mm -hmm. of whether or not it was uh, created, it was lab created, or at least leaked from, from a lab in, in Wuhan. But that was something that you found just all sorts of cold water poured on it on MSNBC for months and months and months. Now, was that because it was unreasonable to think that, you know, as John Stewart says, um, you know, the, the Wuhan coronavirus lab <laughs> and the outbreak of the, you know, pandemic coronavirus in Wuhan, China, there might be some relationship there, you know, is, was that such a crazy thing to think or to investigate? Mm -hmm. um, or is it because, well, I don't trust that because Trump is going to use that in a racist way. And so I don't want to believe that. And so I'm not even going to look at the evidence for that. Same thing now with UFOs. Mm. Same thing now with all the or unidentified aerial phenomena, right? Do I want to be in that camp who believes in that? But what do you do now that there's, you know, 140 some sightings? W one of the things I love the most about philosophy is that it gives you healthy respect that you don't know what you don't know. Mm -hmm. And the, I think it was Tom, Thomas Schelling, the, the economist, the Nobel Prize winning economist, who said, nobody, no matter how smart they are, can make a list of the things that have never occurred to them. <laughs> you just don't know an awful lot of things. Now, that doesn't mean that all bets are off and any belief we have is great and perfect and there's no accountability for any belief. Mm -hmm. Being a scientist means being accountable for your belief based on the evidence. And when the evidence is sufficient to believe it, you do. And when the evidence is not sufficient, you don't. And it's calibrating where that is that's, that's important. And politics, left or right, should play no part in that. Mm -hmm. I, I, like you, am a, a progressive. I, I say liberal. I'm an old school liberal. Yeah. But I, I don't think that ideology left or right has any room in science mm -hmm. yeah and and yeah that's a that's a great place to to end it like my one of my personal personal philosophies is just to have daily reminders that's one of the reasons i love to read so much is to always remind myself how much there is that i don't know you know what i mean and just have that kind yeah. of intellectual humility as as much as possible even though my ego hates it but uh but yeah anyways so lee uh, when is this book coming out? Where can people get it? And where can people find you to keep up okay. with all the upcoming projects you well, have going on too? I have the first copy in existence. Look at there, that there is no other copy right now. This is it for the entire world. <laughs> the rest of you, <laughs> August 17th. It'll, it'll be available at uh, uh, Barnes and Noble and Amazon and all sorts of other places that uh, that uh, you know you would you would look for books on uh, on August seventeenth, and people who want to follow me and my work can go to leemacintyrebooks.com, and they can read a little bit about how I got interested in philosophy, where my future speaking events are going to be, uh, things that mm -hmm. I've written, uh, books, articles, and such. And uh, there's also contact information if people want to write to me and you know follow up the conversation. I'm happy to do that uh, as well, and. Um, yeah. Thanks yeah. for asking that question. I yeah. Love, yeah. I'd love to be able to tell people that they can contact me. 
one one more quick question are you already started on the next book what is it or you're taking a break uh, that, that's that's not quite how i work i i don't <laughs> i don't admit to myself that i'm writing a new book until i'm about a year into it that's because great. what happens is i i write a book and then i go out and do all the publicity and i'm on tour and i'm talking to people about it and then i start to realize wow I should have said more about that or what about this whole other thing mm. or oh my god th th there's there's another book here i finally realized and then that's the next book that then i just write get to writing <laughs> so, so I've, i'm not quite to the point yet this is too new so i'm not quite to the point yet to admit that i'm writing a new book but i am doing a lot of reading and a lot of printing and a lot of uh you know filing that will ultimately become this you know super big file that becomes the, the next book. If you want to get a taste of that, of what I'm thinking about now, um, I've got a piece in the uh, Washington Post a couple of days ago on mm. the war on truth, which kind of goes back to a previous book on post-truth. But I, I'll just tell you and uh, not be obscure. I'm thinking more and more these days after, you know, I wrote how to talk to a science denier, that that's only part of the problem. Convincing mm. the audience who is confused and victimized by disinformation is only part of the problem we've also go, got to go after the people who are creating the disinformation mm, and that's a political it. question and yeah. i'm thinking a little bit more about that these days so it's it's kind of bringing me full circle back to that question because you know you have empathy with science deniers because in some sense they're victims yeah but the people who are creating the disinformation are doing it on purpose for their own benefit Mm -hmm. And you know what? There aren't that many of them out there who are doing it. It's just that it's super amplified by social media and then it works its way out to the masses who get their marching orders, know what to believe, maybe because it lines up with a political identity and then it's too late. Yeah. So that's well, what I'm thinking about now. I Well, you know, I would definitely read that. So. <laughs> <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't even admitted I'm writing that yet. Yeah, <laughs> well, I will be staying tuned. And yeah, thank you so much for your time and all the links uh, to the book to pre-order will be down in the description below. Thank and you, Chris. I, I'm sure we'll talk soon. Thank you very much. I uh, appreciate the uh, enthusiasm and what a great conversation. Terrific. All right, everybody, there you have it. That was my conversation with Lee McIntyre about his brand new book that just came out yesterday, How to Talk to a Science Denier. And yeah, like get a copy for yourself. And like I say, give a copy to someone else because we all have these people in our lives, whether it's friends, whether it's family, maybe they, they don't wanna get the vaccine or they're worried about vaccinating their children. Like my son, fortunately was 12 years old, right? So he's at the cutoff, but now they're working on trying to get younger kids vaccinated. So a lot of parents have a lot of questions and things like that. But anyways, Lee's book will help you kind of get inside, you know, the mind of science deniers and learn from Lee's experiments and, and, and his, his research about how to talk to these people, right? Because we're not enemies, like we need to get on the same page. Um, you know what I mean? So, so please check out his book. It's linked down in the description below. It just came out. We recorded this a while 
while back. Like he sent it to me like a month and a half ago and I just binged that sucker. So it's so good. So check it out, link down in the description. Make sure you're following Lee over on Twitter as well. All right, but yeah, also down in the description below are my links to my social media. So make sure you're following me at The Rewired Soul so you don't miss any upcoming episodes or news or any cool stuff that I'm working on. All right, but yeah, if you're new to the podcast and you like the topics that we cover, if you like to learn, if you like books, if you like authors who are like researching stuff and experts in their field, make sure you're following the podcast or subscribed if you're over on Apple. And what else helps out is if you leave a rating and review over on Apple, and it also helps if you share it. So if you're on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or Reddit or whatever, share with your friends. All that does is it shows the algorithms like, hey, people are into this. We're going to distribute it out to some more people so we can grow this lovely little community we have. All right. But yeah, for anybody who would like to support the podcast and what I do and my reading habit and all that, uh, there's some uh, links down in the description below uh, over at my website, TheRewiredSoul.com. I've self-published some books on mental health, addiction recovery and all that. And uh, there's also a link to Patreon if you want to become a patron. And finally, there's also a link down below for better help online therapy that's an affiliate link for an awesome service that i've personally used because i i get it it can be difficult with friends family members who are either science deniers or just if you have toxic family members i did a lot of therapy to learn how to not just cope with my family but like people in the world right and work on my depression and anxiety and all that stuff so uh yeah better help it's affordable you do it from the comfort of your own home you work with a licensed therapist from your state so yeah if you're interested in that check out the affiliate link down below. But yeah, huge, huge thanks once again for Lee coming on to chat about his new book, How to Talk to a Science Denier, and I hope you check it out. And tomorrow, tomorrow, we'll be talking to a psychology professor who just wrote a book about the psychology of comedy. And it is an absolutely amazing book, and we had a great conversation. So make sure you come back tomorrow and you tune in, all right? But until then, have a wonderful rest of your day, and I'll see you next time.